Hey, welcome back to Transform Your Workplace. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Thanks so much for like all the support and just the great community we built. I feel like we've totally hit a stride, getting lots of great feedback. We're getting some amazing guests. And personally, I think it's just interesting topics that we're talking about that truly are transforming workplaces. So today I've got Amy Edmondson on the podcast. She wrote a few books. Teaming is one of them, which we briefly touch on. And then she wrote a newer book, The Fearless Organization. She was fantastic. Just a wealth of knowledge. I really enjoyed the conversation and I loved her book. So go check those out. Enjoy the conversation. I mentioned at the very end of the podcast, which I'll spoil alert, tell you now, doing a book giveaway for her book, The Fearless Organization. And to enter into an opportunity to get one of her books... All you need to do, tweet at us, at ZennyMHR. You can tag Amy as well. I'll put links to the Twitter profiles in the show notes as well, so you can easily tag us. But say something about the podcast, share the podcast and tag us and just you know something about it would be fantastic. I'll be monitoring that. So I'll try to figure out the first three people and I'll get in touch with you and send you the books. So enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for all the support. Oh, and go give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you listen that way. It's really helping us. Really appreciate it. Enjoy. Hey, Amy, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk about your book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. When did this book come out? came out in November. So late November 2018. Really recent. And it's fresh. I think this book is more relevant than ever. In the introduction, you it really stated, and I think this really leads back to your first earlier book, Teaming, mm-hmm. where you talked about employees at all levels are spending 50% of the more time collaborating than they did 20 years ago. And I would make the assumption that if they interact this much, in order to be successful, it requires really, really effective teams. So I want to start with your book, Teaming, because I think that really sets the stage for this conversation about psychological safety in the workplace. So for me, describe teaming and what that book was all about. Sure. So teaming was all about, in a way, the fraying of the team structure. Now, that sounds wrong, but what I've been seeing in organizations around the world is that people are less likely to be on a stable, intact team for a long period of time and kind of only on that team. What we see instead is that you might be on multiple teams at once or You might be on teams that are really quite unbounded, meaning it's not entirely clear who's on the team and who isn't. And yet the work is increasingly interdependent. Like you really do have to collaborate thoughtfully with people to get high quality work done, whether that's new product development or customer service or what have you. But you're not necessarily doing it in stable teams. So I wrote teaming first and foremost, to call attention to that lens, you know, that trend that we're all having to do a lot of teaming, but not necessarily in stable teams. Like it's the verb, not the noun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because then in order to have really effective teams where they're, they're communicating really well, you talk about this in the newer book, psychological safety and the fearless organization. So talk about why teams are more effective in this psychologically safe workplace. When you stop to think about it, you know, let me put it in a stark way, teaming with strangers or teaming with people that you don't really know super well or have long-standing relationships with, so you trust them, you understand them, 
is an inherently challenging thing to do. Human beings will feel reluctant to say things when they're not sure they'll be well received. But if we're teaming, we've got to be kind of fearless, right? We've got to be mm -hmm. speaking up and listening and processing what each other have to say. And we simply can't do that well if we are holding back due to fear, right? If we're holding back due to concerns about what you might think of me. And so, you know, psychological safety or what I define as a belief that I can speak up without fear of reprisal or maybe stated positively, I can speak up and it will be valued or at least listened to by my colleagues is really essential to effective teaming. So for organizations that don't have psychological safety in the workplace, it's safe to say, and no pun intended there with the safe, <laughs> uh, but they're basically sitting on their hands. Like they have opinions, they want to bring up something, but they don't feel comfortable out of fear that they could be reprimanded, judged, demoted, whatever it may be. Is that how I kind of think about it? Yes, I think that's absolutely spot on. You know, and sometimes I guess I would just add to that, that it's not always a conscious, gee, I might lose my job or I might not get that promotion, but almost more of a sub, you know, right below conscious awareness sense that I really need people to think well of me. And when in doubt, silence wins. You know, I'm like, if I'm super confident that what I have to say is going to get applause, I'll say it. Of course, that's very human as well. But if I'm in doubt, let me just hold back a little. And unfortunately, <laughs> all of us are working in increasingly uncertain, complex, interdependent settings. And so more often than not, we're going to lack that confidence, right? That sometimes what we have to say is speculative or, you know, potentially wrong, or it's a question. You know, mm. how many times have you found yourself holding back from asking a question, even though you really wanted to know, but you look around and Nobody else is asking it. So you think, hmm, maybe I'm supposed to know that already. And I don't want to look stupid. You know, that might not all go through your head, but that's the subtext that makes you better safe than sorry. I'll just hold back. No one ever got fired for silence. Does psychological safety vary across groups within an organization? So let's say you have a fairly large organization, at least over 100 employees. Could you have these like subset groups that have different levels of psychological safety? Not only could you, I've never seen an organization where that is not the case. Really? In other words, that's the rule, not the exception. So yeah. one might think, ah, psychological safety, gee, you know, company A has it, company B doesn't. It rarely looks like that. You know, even when you have an absolutely terrific CEO who says and does all the right things, there's so much room for local variance. It's very much the leaders in the middle that matters. Say a restaurant chain, you know, the general manager of the restaurant in location X is going to have a very profound influence on how psychologically safe the workers in that restaurant feel. And that's even if you're not in something so obviously separate. In every organization, there are teams, there are groups, there are regions, there are functions, and there's just a lot of variability. It's a kind mm -hmm. of the interpersonal climate nearly always varies. I think in some places it might vary enormously and in others yeah. just a little. But yeah, so we have pockets, probably in almost any organization, you can find pockets of psychological safety, and then you can find pockets of fear. It was interesting. I think in this same area of the book, you really talked to the hospital. And I think you'd done some studies there and had some other colleagues mm -hmm. working on the study as well. And I think you were trying to find out like what made this really elite team so great and this good team, like, what was the difference between those two? 
And I think you had an original hypothesis, then you came back, looked at the data, and then you were thinking maybe it had something to do with the psychological safety. So you sent, I believe it was an assistant, but with no preconceived notions, Mm -hmm. didn't even state the hypothesis. What did your assistant find? Yes. So he was a research assistant, you know, who was sort of hired for this purpose, a very thoughtful, very careful, you know, diligent observer who did observations and interviews. But I had data both on at least observable medication errors and error rates. And I had data on survey measures of team effectiveness. And what led me to hire this research assistant was the following. The data suggested at first glance that better teams, according to a well-validated team survey instrument, were making more mistakes, or at least the relationship between the team survey measures and the error rates was positive, meaning better teams had higher error rates. They're reporting more, essentially. Yeah, exactly. So then I suddenly thought, and I later called it a blinding flash of the obvious, Mm -hmm. I thought, well, wait a minute, maybe these better teams, because I believed the survey instrument, aren't making more mistakes. Maybe they're more able and willing to talk about them because they recognize that in healthcare delivery, it's a complex error-prone system. Mistakes will happen. Human beings are you know, fallible by our very nature. And so it's super important that we're always vigilant, that we're always alert, that we're always catching, correcting, and talking about ways to get better. That's what good care looks like, right? Whereas others, I began to suspect, were probably, you know, if a mistake mm-hmm. comes to light and it becomes clear that I was in any way associated with it, I might lose my job exactly. or I might get humiliated or yelled at, right? So I thought, oh, you know, that's a reasonable hypothesis to explain this unexpected finding. But it's one thing to have a hypothesis. It's another to have some evidence that it might be true. (laughs) So the best way I could think of to do that was to hire this guy and say, I'm not going to give you any information about really what I'm looking for, but just go talk to people, spend time in these teams and take notes on what's it like to work there. And He ultimately did a very good job of that. And he came back and he said, wow, they really differ. And these were different teams in the same, actually two hospitals, two academic medical centers. And he came back reporting just enormous variation in the work climate. And, you know, he felt that some had very open climates. Others had, in his words, uh, not mine, very authoritarian leaders, obviously the hospital level, but the team level. And I said, great, that's the kind of stuff I'm looking for. Can you document it? And ultimately, I said, can you rank order the teams, you know, on this measure that you've created of sort of openness? And he said he could, and he did. And he showed me sort of his supporting qualitative data. and. I took that information and then I correlated with the actual error rates and the correlation was stunningly high. It was an impressive result that basically said, gee, you know, error rates are incredibly well predicted by how open the team is. Now, if you can come up with a good reason why more open teams make more mistakes, then that could be an alternative explanation. But that doesn't make too much sense, right? Because more open, we should be more able to sort of know what's going on and catch and correct and do well. So it wasn't conclusive in a way because it's still sort of correlational and subjective, but it gave me a very strong possibility that A, interpersonal climates, even within the same organization, vary widely at the team level or the unit level. And B, that might very well have something to say about learning behavior, that more, you know, better interpersonal climates will allow learning behavior 
And so then from that point on, I had to see if I could study that on purpose rather than, you know, by mistake. I love that because it makes so much sense. So your hypothesis, you proved it to be basically right. I think it makes a lot of sense because of just the feedback loop of like open communication transparency. You're able to, you mentioned it, you make changes really fast. You can catch errors, fix them. Let's take this to the big business world. So you highlighted a few companies, Volkswagen in particular and Wells Fargo. These companies Mm -hmm. had issues that you're sort of describing that was the difference between the really effective team in the hospital and the not so effective team where you know, there are organizations out there that openly admit mistakes, fix them. They're very transparent. And then these two companies were not so transparent and years went by without fixes being made. Hey, Brandon here to take a quick break to talk about the annual What People Want From Work survey presented by Zenium HR. The survey offers a look into your workplace through your employees' eyes. We're going to reveal what's working, what needs improvement, and what your employees want from the workplace. We're going to cover areas like leadership, workplace culture, management support, rewards and recognition, work environment, and so much more. It's a mix of qualitative and quantitative data. The deadline to register, July 31st, 2019, and the survey will be open until August 31st, 2019. You'll get a free report in the end to tell you all about what your people want from work. You'll get your scores and a nice PDF report. If you want to participate, go to zeniumhr.com forward slash survey and you can sign up right away. Now back to the show. So let's talk about Volkswagen. I think that's a great example. So they basically hid some emissions testing. I don't remember exactly what they did, but I know it was very fraudulent. They probably had to pay a lot of money. What happened there? How could that have been avoided? Yeah. It's funny because, you know, one of those two examples is automotive, of course, VW, the other is banking, and it seems like very different worlds, and yet the stories Mm, are a remarkable echo of each other. And by that, I mean, and let's go to Volkswagen first. So in a sense, at Volkswagen, the CEO, top executives, had a very clear and compelling strategy. They wanted to be, you know, the biggest and most admired automotive company in the world. To do that, it was mission critical to have huge presence in the U.S. market. And in order to do that, they thought they could have a niche of the green car Mm -hmm. niche, you know. And so their claim was and their aspiration was to have their diesel engine really be a hugely popular product in the U.S. market. And they were sort of selling it as an environmentally better choice than the regular gas engine. And Okay, so now we have to just step back and sort of recognize it turns out that technologically that wasn't feasible. Like it's a lovely idea, but in reality it can't be done at that particular time, let's say 2008 or whatever time this is unfolding. The current technology, the diesel engine, could not be made green enough to pass our emissions standards. And so absolutely terrified of the boss and particularly of the boss's boss and all the way up the senior executives, the engineers found themselves in the position of feeling that it was going to be better to design software that would cheat the regulators, that would make the engine look like it wasn't emitting the bad things it was emitting. And I'm not saying rather than fixing it, if they could have fixed it, they probably I mean, would think have. about yeah, the energy yeah. and would have exactly it wasn't laziness in any way because the software is hard work too so they thought it was you know more feasible in a sense psychologically and 
intellectually to design deceit software than to tell their boss it simply cannot be done. To me, first of all, I have great empathy. I mean, I can't imagine being in a workplace where you're making that devil's choice. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it must feel awful, right? You know, I want to say I do have empathy uh, for these folks, especially lower level folks. I have less empathy, I have to admit, for the folks at the top who used fear as a weapon. Now, I think they weren't terribly, as I write about in the book, conscious of doing that. I think that was the way they were brought up. So they just acted that way. And I mean, brought up in the company, as it were. But it's a beautiful illustration of how dangerous fear at work mm -hmm. is. Because what happens is you can have, through your fear tactics, you can end up with what looks like good performance, but what isn't good performance. And I think that's the same in those hospital units where they weren't speaking up about mistakes. It looked like good performance, but actually patients were at great risk. This looked like good performance, but actually the whole company was at risk of eventually being detected, the fraud being detected, and then of course huge economic penalties and reputational penalties. And, you know, not incidentally, the actual emissions that they were spewing into the air led to measurable increases in asthma and other lung-related conditions. So this is bad, and I would argue avoidable. In fact, that chapter in the book is called Avoidable Failures. And how do you avoid it? Well, you know, if you're working in complex, certain terrain, as most of us are today, you've really got to work to make sure people aren't silenced by fear. Yeah, 100%. You later on talk about Nokia and their challenges with just being in a really competitive environment. They're on top of the world with their mobile mm -hmm. cell phone towers, all that. And then, you know, enter Google and Apple with their smartphone technology. And I mean, it's just a really competitive environment. You source a quote from a manager at Nokia. I don't know if it was from another article or journal or something, but yeah. the quote says, in Nokia's R&D, the culture was such that they wanted to please the upper levels. They wanted to give them good news not a reality check, end quote. Yeah. I'm looking at this, I'm like, especially with a creative and technologically innovative company, mm -hmm. if you're not open yes. and transparent and always talking about like, well, this can't work, maybe this will work and brainstorm ideas and be open about that. How do you expect to compete in a very competitive world just to please your boss because they don't want to hear it? That's mm -hmm. crazy to me. It's crazy. It's magical thinking. You know, it's almost when we step back and look at it with perspective that you and I are looking at it, it almost seems implausible. Really? You know, these are smart people. These are people who've gone to good schools and, you know, have advanced degrees in many cases. It's really like, you know, mm -hmm. you could be that stupid. And yes, the answer is yes, we can be that stupid, we human beings, collectively, um, <laughs> and when silenced by fear, right? You know, you can have really smart people, but then you put them in a stupid system and stupid things come out. And I would call, you know, any system that's operating in a really competitive and especially technological industry that doesn't do everything in its power to ensure that it's getting the truth mm -hmm. and the new reality of the technology and the market and everything else, that's a poor design. And so, yes, it seems sort of, you know, almost crazy that you could find yourself in a position of simply delivering good news up the hierarchy because you're living on borrowed time, right? But you do it, basically, you're just not giving it the proper thought. Yeah. And being that Nokia was in a competitive environment, they were behind. Do you think a psychologically mm. safe organization would have made them compete any better? Like, would it made them more innovative? Like, what would you argue? Well, let me address that in two yeah. ways. So one is, 
it sure as heck would have helped. Yeah. Right. Or one way to put it is without that, they were doomed. With it, would they have been rescued? We don't know. It's an unanswerable question because we don't know, you know, whether or not they had enough talent, technology, and so forth to have pulled it off. But we do know that you don't have a prayer if you're not really clear about what's going on. But the other aspect of that question is if you're going to be highly innovative in a competitive industry, that is a process and involves a set of behaviors that themselves require psychological safety. So the first part, we're talking about psychological safety kind of as an organizational phenomenon. You know, if the organization doesn't allow people to send bad news up the hierarchy, then you're not getting the right signals and you're not authorizing the right Mm R&D projects. The other part of psychological safety is the part that happens in the R&D organization itself. And highly functional, successful R&D organizations have high psychological safety, right? They have, because that requires people to speak up with crazy ideas yeah. to criticize and, you know, just sort of go, oh, it's not there yet. You know, let's try again, right? It's a deeply iterative, messy process. And you can't do iterative, messy processes without psychological safety. Well, let's look at the opposite end of the spectrum. Look at Ed Catmull at, at Pixar, what he did with his teams to create very innovative movies, very creative. Like, how was he leading those teams to create a psychologically safe workplace because I mean this is complete opposite of what we just heard on the Volkswagen side where people are probably at the lowest levels able to bring up ideas that let's just throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. Mm -hmm. I think there's actually three really specific things that Catmull did at Pixar to make that work and to you know to make that magic. And one is role modeling. And he says often, you know, if I as a leader, I'm not willing you know, to talk about my mistakes, how can I expect others to do it? I think that's both a thoughtful point and, and a crucial behavior, you know, that leaders everywhere need to take a page out of that Catmull book. And number two is that he frames the work in a wonderful way. Like he says things all the time, like early on, all of our movies are bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're terrible. Right. That's sort of, you know, the way you get a good movie is by starting with a bad movie and then you just iterate the heck out of it. Right. And the way you iterate, it's, that's not a solo sport. That's a team sport. You know, you put it out there for people to just throw stuff at it. You know, and by throw stuff at it, I mean, first and foremost, criticism. Oh, it's not working. It's schmaltzy. It's not interesting. The curly hair doesn't look curly, whatever. And second of all, ideas like, hey, what if we tried this, right? So it's a kind of team sport. And then the third thing that I think he does extraordinarily well is create structures, forums, you know, that make it easier because no matter how much we talk about, we need to hear your voice, we need criticism, we need crazy ideas, it still can be a little hard for people to come forward. But if you create a forum in which, you know, we're sitting around the table and your job in this forum is to offer stuff, it's like scaffolding. It holds it up. It helps. So it's the role modeling, the framing the work as something that just supposed to be bad, but then get good. And then the structures and one of the structures they use at Pixar is called the brain mm-hmm. trust. And that's a disciplined ritual of coming together periodically. It has ground rules. You know, people come together and they critique the evolving product, mm-hmm. the movie. Yeah, it seems to me like the role modeling at the very top and then also just giving people opportunity to speak up regularly would be really instrumental to creating a psychologically safe workplace is to know, let people know that, hey, you're heard, 
your voices, your opinions are valued. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the other end of the spectrum. So you talked about Uber for a while in one of the chapters, and I didn't know all the details. I was actually really disgusted by it. So this is, I think a person on her first day comes in, is basically sexually harassed through live chat Mm -hmm. and some Mm -hmm. messaging within the company, goes to basically screenshots the conversation, goes to HR reporting the manager. And they basically said, Mm -hmm. we're not going to do anything besides a stern talking to because he's such a high performer. To me, that is the opposite of what you're describing with the open forum and value of opinion, because all it takes is a couple of incidents like that to say, fear is going to take hold in our organization. We don't value you. Absolutely. Companies like that are unaware of how strong, powerful, and destructive the signal they're sending is. Right? And the signal that we don't value you, we don't care about you. I mean, it's such an ineffective thing to do because a company like Uber and you know the engineer in question, the woman in question, is a smart, mm-hmm. capable person who has a lot to offer. But who's going to offer extra effort and ideas and ingenuity to a company that doesn't care about you? And by the way, eventually you're just going to find your way out and say, I'm going to go work Absolutely. somewhere else. And you know, so you lose talent that way. And not incidentally, people get hurt. I mean, they get physically hurt or emotionally hurt by that kind of abusive behavior. So it's, yeah, it's the very opposite Mm -hmm. of a fearless organization. Yeah. So in the fearless organization, how do leaders provide ample opportunity to have open dialogue? Like what sort of format is it in? Is it always in meetings? Is it just around the office? Is it digitally through communication? Like how do you recommend Mm. people exchange ideas and make sure that they feel valued? You know, it very much depends on the nature of the work and the nature of time and so forth. So, you know, the request for input can vary all the way from something like the end on cord in the Toyota production system to the brain trust. So the end on cord is a literal physical cord. Every team member is invited to pull when he or she sees either a problem or even a potential problem. Like they welcome ambiguous data, right? If you see something, you're just not 100% sure it's perfect. Might be fine, right? but you're not 100% sure it's perfect. We are absolutely encouraging you all the time to pull that cord. And you pull that cord and basically what that does is instantly pulls in a team leader and you get to team up for a hmm. second or two and sort of figure out what's going on together. It's a team sport, if you will. But that's a physical invitation, you know, that cord, which, by the way, the word andon means lantern in Japanese. So it's indication we want you to help us shine light on problems and on what's really happening. So that's a funny way to invite voice, but that makes sense for an automotive assembly line. On the other extreme, the Pixar process, the brain trust we were just discussing is a, you know, lovely gathering of, you know, maybe eight to 12 human beings in a nice conference room in a Bay Area office building, right? And we're going to maybe be in this room for an hour or two, and we're invited to say whatever comes into our head, but say it in as constructive a way as possible. Recognize you're critiquing the movie, Mm -hmm. not the person, and all sorts of other things. And everything in between, like Mm one-on-one meetings, there are ways to ask questions that indicate, I really do want to hear what you're thinking or in team meetings or all, you know, town hall meetings. So 
there isn't one venue in which to invite voice and it's going to be very much dependent on the nature yeah. of the work. I'm glad you brought up the one-on-one meetings because those are my favorite. They're intimate. You can ask the right questions that you'd mentioned. Like there's really good attributes to good questions to spark dialogue and to build openness and trust between two people to get to root cause issues, to brainstorm. And you know, you have actually like a bunch of bullet points about what makes up a really good question. Can you share a couple of those things off the top of your head? Sure. So a really good question. First and foremost is one you don't know the answer to. Um, <laughs> and I only say that because actually, you know, sometimes you'll want to stage sure. a question to give someone, you know, the opportunity to offer what they know and you already know they know it. But the reason I put it that way is because coming from a place of curiosity actually really helps. If I'm genuinely curious about what you're thinking I find myself in a position of just genuinely listening, you know, of deep listening. And I then go on to say that it should be focused on a particular issue or topic. You know, what do you think about this movie? What are your ideas for how we might get new customers, right? It's not just, hey, what's on your mind, right? So it's sufficiently narrow. We can make traction on it, but it's not so narrow that it kind of gives you multiple choice options or worse, a yes, no option. Amy, this has been such a fun conversation. What else do you want to say about the Fearless Organization to kind of put a bow on this entire conversation and then also want to allow you to point people to some of your work or what you're up to, anything that you want to talk about? Great. Thank you. So I'm most interested these days in the Fearless Organization and the word getting out there because I am passionate about changing the modern workplace, right? You early on said, you know, well, what about organizations where they don't really have this? Unfortunately, today, I think it's still the majority, right? The majority of organizations don't have enough psychological safety to really do and help allow their employees to do the work they're truly capable of doing and do the teaming mm -hmm. that they're truly capable of doing. So I'm passionate about helping all of your listeners change their workplaces. And I wrote the Fearless Organization to be full of stories, as you've already mentioned so many of them, but there's many others, but full of stories of real workplaces that are incredibly diverse in industry and country and all of that. And then got a couple of chapters at the end that are, I think, full of useful advice on how do you make an impact on this. And then more broadly, you can go to Harvard Business School website and you'll see a list of articles and books that I've written if that's of interest. Amy Edmondson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're the author of The Fearless Organization. It's an incredible book. In fact, I want to do a giveaway. So if somebody tweets out this podcast highlighting Amy's work, I'm going to give away three books. So for the people that tweet about first, I'll send you a book from Amazon. So thank you for coming on the podcast, Amy. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you so much.